Hello and welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast, your home for stock market news and ideas to get investing for a better return. I'm Marcus De Silva. There's lots in the pod today. I'm pleased to say we're going to hear which tech firm will start offering crypto in the UK. We're going to see what retail investors are concerning themselves about in terms of their investment portfolios over the next five years. We hear the event that professional investors are waiting eagerly for in the US. We've got news on Pure Gym's plans and the OnlyFans adult content saga before our main interview today with Laith Caliph from AJ Bell, the third largest investment platform in the UK. And we're going to be, it's a really interesting topic. Um, it's one that uh, a listener has has requested and I think is really important actually and that's how you go about picking individual stocks because lots of us like doing it it's definitely a riskier side of things but that's what makes it quite exciting I think so what Lathe is going to do is just outline some of these key financial metrics that he, he reckons you need to to look for in in uh, the reports that that companies release um, and also how you go about dealing with that risk and, and how they fit into your portfolio, plus a neat, a neat little trick to kind of get going with it um, as you sort of develop your stock picking skills. Before we start, please can I ask you to subscribe and share the pod with friends and family if you're enjoying it. We need lots of you to help us on our mission to democratize investing. Okay, let's start with the news. And the first one uh, that kind of caught my eye was on uh, a crypto story, really. So this is to do with the fact that PayPal is going to be introducing a new service in the UK that allows investors to buy and trade crypto assets. Now, of course, that's nothing that new. I mean, there's numerous exchanges that enable retail investors to do this here in this country. But what's interesting is that PayPal in the US facilitates payments in cryptos between consumers and businesses which means this service is probably not that far away in the UK after they've sort of introduced the initial one for trading of crypto assets. Now Laith Calif, who we're going to hear from very shortly was speaking to me about this and he was saying how skeptical he he kind of is of how useful this will be you know because of course how long is a business going to really want to hold on to a cryptocurrency given how volatile the prices are and the fact that they have to pay bills like salaries or rent or whatever it is in pounds, euros, dollars, you know, whatever the currency is. So, you know, worried that suddenly they might have significantly less money if suddenly the price of this crypto that they're holding crashes, you can see why they would do that. And then on the other side of the transaction, of course, consumers get paid their salaries in traditional currencies too. So, it seems like this could just be this kind of meaningless exchange in and out of crypto assets and, you know, a bit of a gimmick um, with, of course, the costs that are involved in that and then the tons of energy that's required. I mean, we know that there's a lot of energy used in in uh, that sort of decentralized ledger process. Um, so Leith described it quite nicely as a, as a digital fig leaf, really. It's covering up payments that could have been made without cryptos. And... It also shows more widely, what's interesting actually, is that PayPal thinks the UK market is an important hub of crypto activity. You know, AJ Bell did some, some research actually. Um, it, clearly, this country 
quite likes quite quite likes crypto assets and there's a lot of traders here because they did some research on over a thousand cryptocurrency holders and they found that these investors are leapfrogging traditional forms of savings and just diving straight into crypto and that actually six out of ten of them didn't even own an isa all right moving on there is some um, research as well i saw from interactive investor on sort of investor sentiment so what what their their retail investors people on the site are concerned about really and of course the big one is okay are they concerned about further covid outbreaks and what that might do to their portfolios the value of their portfolios it seems they are a bit concerned about that but not enough to spook them to do anything particularly defensive right so they're not removing risk from their portfolios and in fact two-thirds of them were shown to just do, doing nothing you know they're just sort of carrying on as normal and a fifth of them are actually increasing their investments in the stock market as well so they're not spooked by that and and when they sort of dug a bit deeper and they said okay so what what is the biggest threat to stock markets you know in in your eyes over the next five years the list was geopolitical tensions this is in in order as well of importance geopolitical tensions inflation climate change and then China's crackdown on private businesses. These were all higher than concerns about COVID. So it suggests that COVID is, to retail investors, really a short-term concern, that they're thinking a bit more long-term, which is great to hear. Because, um, of course, you know, timing markets is, 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 is not a good idea. It's just, it's better to think long-term. If markets go down, you know, buy into the dips, you know, keep hold of your investments, um, because often assets are, you know, they're over oversold, um, especially during crises um, and can become very cheap. And so it can be great, you know, if, if you'd held your nerve right after lockdowns and the pandemic sort of hit and markets had crashed out, then you would have made very, very big returns um, up to this point now. So and it's because those recovery days after the big falls, and this is literally the few days after the big falls, is where big returns can be made so um yeah interesting interesting stuff there okay let's move on to markets and really it's all you know what investors are are waiting for is this upcoming jackson hole symposium for central bankers uh which is pretty imminent but before we get on to that let me just begin with last week and that's where we saw a bit of a stock market wobble there's some fears over rising covid infections particularly this delta variant signs of an economic slowdown in china as well and then fed minutes as well from its last policy meeting were released and it sort of showed this emerging consensus amongst its members that that tapering should happen before the end of the year so it's just that that conversation is starting to rear up and and it had weighed a bit on on market sentiment last week but this week it seems investors are a bit more a bit more positive and, and sort of treading water waiting to hear what comes out of this this feds jackson hole event which begins on friday so this is an annual get together of central bankers plus lots of other people like academics and finance ministers and some market participants as well from all over the world to sort of align and discuss very broadly about you know monetary policies and things like that uh it's this forum really just to to sort of get together because it, it showed that this sort of more coordinated central bank response to things is is quite powerful um, so it's very useful and then it, it's watched very closely by market participants which means it can create volatility depending on what is said in in various speeches of which there, there tends to be a few some are wondering whether 
you know, whether the Fed will talk about exactly when it will start to reduce its massive asset purchasing, uh, asset purchase programs. Uh, that's $120 billion a month that they're spending. And of course, that's been underpinning markets ever since COVID hit. You know, it's a lot of liquidity. Some worry, of course, this news could create a second as it's called taper tantrums. This refers back to 2013, that's when the market um, became quite volatile because then Fed chairman, this guy called Ben Bernanke, he was he was speaking to US politicians and, and he said that he was slowing asset purchases and you know everyone freaked out because it was a bit of a blindsided um, by, by that information. Um, but this time round though, I think broadly the consensus is that the Fed has it's been guiding markets for a while on this. You know that's why it's been talking about it. You know, hinting towards it for so much time. It's so that that can then that that information can be baked into the price a little bit. Um, and also, they they probably wouldn't want to taper just yet. I mean, inflation doesn't seem too too bad, and and Fed members are not really in agreement just yet on when best to start. It seems, and so they're going to need some more data. Uh, so, you know, I heard, yeah, I heard someone say it would probably be a bit of a snooze fest, actually. But nonetheless, investors are waiting, are waiting for that. Globally, I mean, as I, as I mentioned, there are concerns about rising Delta variant infections. It led Asian shares lower on Thursday. We also saw the first interest rate rise. It was quite interesting from a major Asian economy this week in South Korea. And they raised their base rate 25 basis points to 0.75% following data showing that its economy was starting to overheat a little bit. In Japan, the government said its economy was continuing to pick up, but weaker than it thought last month when it when it sort of um, talked about this. So COVID, is, it, they think COVID is really weighing on, on consumer spending there. In Europe, German data showed the mood to soured a little bit amongst consumers worrying about COVID infections as well, although data earlier in the week showed its economic recovery is progressing nicely. All in all, the S&P 500 is up 113 points to 4,496. The stock 600 is up three points to 470. The FTSE 100 is up 67 points to 7,125. And the Nikkei 225 is up 503 points to 27,742. Next up is companies. We've got a couple of stories here. First off, Pure Gym. Looks as if it may list on the public market soon and become public through this an IPO, an initial public offering. Um, I don't want to say public anymore times there. Um, it's the largest gym chain in the UK. And it's been looking at funding options as all the UK's fitness bods get back to the gym following closures across across gyms for, for COVID reasons, obviously. Uh, obviously, the government wanted the public not to mix too much, so so they had been closed for a while, and it put a lot of strain on gyms. So it now this is it, you know, the enthusiasm's back. It, it wants some money to sort of pay down some of its debt, which it's got quite a lot of, and also fund new gym op- gym openings in uh, the Middle East, Asia, and the US, That's, uh, which is good stuff. Because, I mean, during the closures, I found this quite amazing, just to give you an idea. It was burning through... So it has 506 gyms, right? And it was burning through £500,000 a day <laughs> um, and and had to take in £100 million from its private equity backers as well as use uh, government COVID support. Um, so that was interesting. And it's not the first time it's tried an IPO as well. It was actually 
bought by these private equity backers. They're an LA-based firm called Leonard Green um, in 2017 after it had to cancel plans to float in 2016. And then it said it was it was very soon after Brexit and there just wasn't enough interest from investors. So I guess they're hoping it will be quite different this time around now that sort of Brexit uncertainty is, has sort of gone away. Okay, final story in company is OnlyFans. And uh, I'm sure many of you might have, have been reading about this, but in case you don't know OnlyFans, it's this London-based platform and app that enables users, the fans, to pay for content that's behind these sort of paid-for walls um, from a variety of content creators. So it could be fitness trainers, it could be models, chefs, musicians, but to a large part of it, sex workers and pornography. And prior to COVID, it had 30 million users. And then lockdown happens. Now, we were talking about Pure Gym. I mean, this is the opposite. They obviously got hammered, you know, like you know, cinemas did. You know, lockdown was very, very bad for their businesses. Whereas for OnlyFans, this was an amazing tailwind, really. Suddenly, all these different professionals who, who couldn't earn money in their, in their traditional ways went to the site and, and create content quite easily, you know, in their rooms and things like that. Um, and people would pay for that. And the site just boomed, you know, um, up to 130 million users, uh, which is just remarkable growth uh, over this period of time since since COVID. But last week it hit the news because they announced that they would ban sexually explicit videos due to this weird this uh, this 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 pressure that apparently banks had uh, put on them, the ones that they that they deal with them and facilitate payments um, because they didn't want to be associated with adult content and that didn't go down down very well really this view sort of surfaced that the site was abandoning sex workers who had actually been a large part of it, its success um, so its founder Tim Stokely came out and uh, gave a, an interview to journalists and, and, and he pointed the finger squarely at Bank of New York Mellon and he said in total the company needs to pay around 1 million content creators 300 million dollars per month so banks are very important in facilitating these transactions and bank of new york mellon had flagged every single account said it wouldn't pay people and so it just made operations very very difficult for the business which is why he was forced to come out and say this but then he gave this 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 very savvy bit of uh bit of press and it seemed to have worked and the bank has done a u-turn and the company has now said it will cancel its ban on explicit content so um yeah interesting interesting turnaround for that for that particular story okay let's get on to the main interview with laith caliph where we're going to be talking about stock picking but i shall allow myself to introduce him uh in the interview so hope you enjoy it stock picking can be an exciting part of investing no doubt it's racy and it's a bit risky maybe you've been following a company in the news for years and you think it has some great products or services. But is this the basis to buy its shares for your portfolio? What it sells is really just one small piece of the investment puzzle. Finding out if it's financially sound and has a rosary trajectory into the future is a big piece. So today we're going to unpick stock picking and look at some of the important financial metrics of a business with investment platform AJ Bell's head of investment analysis, Laith Calif. Laith, welcome to the pod. 
Thanks very much, Marcus. So let's start with some trends. I mean, you're one of the largest retail investment platforms in the UK. And obviously, you can see trends of what's going on in ISA and SIP portfolio. So how attracted to individual stocks are investors? And also, is this changing over time? Yeah, so um, I think the answer to that is, is yes, it is changing um, and has changed um, over a considerable period of time. And there has been more and more interest I think, in investing generally, um, but um, probably particularly in individual stocks. Uh, some of that um, is more recent. Some of that is, you know, the last year or so where, you know, I think, you know, you know in, in the UK and also the US, we've seen a lot of you know, kind of armchair investors um, take um, take take to trading, um, particularly on the back of mm. you know some of the you know kind of frothy activity we saw in in the meme stocks, um, you know GameStop and, and AMC in particular, um, which which is a kind of recent phenomenon, um, and 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 one where you know people have kind of probably gone in you know kind of at, at the deep end without doing too much research but but actually if you kind of zoom out a bit and just look at the longer term trend then you know the the you know if if you kind of wind back 20 years um you know we we were kind of you know kind of the the whole the whole kind of financial system was was geared towards you know handing your money over to someone else and letting them deal with it for you so um, you know, people gave their money to insurance companies to invest. Um, a lot of people had workplace pensions, defined uh, benefit pensions, where it was just taken care of for them. Whereas kind of since then, uh, over the last 20 years, people have become kind of, they've been made more responsible for their own kind of financial well-being because final salary schemes aren't really around very much anymore outside of the public sector. Um, the state pensions changed considerably. People don't trust kind of experts and insurance companies quite as much as they used to because of things like the equitable life scandal. Um, and as a result of that, we've seen a lot of people kind of trading funds and also, and also shares. And at the same time, I think over that period, what's happened is that the internet has come along and has massively democratized investing information. So again, 20 years ago, you know, a lot of the things that we're probably going to be talking about today would be incredibly difficult for you to get your hands on as a retail investor. Now they're just kind of a few clicks away. Um, and so that level of kind of information that investors have now really kind of puts them in the driving seat of being able to, to, to pick investments and actually do the research that's necessary to, to do that in an in a appropriate manner. I've worked with some fund managers for quite a few years and it strikes me there's there's quite a lot of training that's involved to become a successful analyst. I mean, there's the Chartered Financial Analyst exams, which sort of take about three years if you manage to pass all the exams first go. Um, so do you think this is something that, you know, picking stocks and being successful at it is something that retail investors can do? Uh, yes, I, I do. I mean, uh, absolutely, you're right that there is a lot of training that goes along with being a professional fund manager. I'd, I'd probably point out that even that training doesn't guarantee that you're going to make a, a good portfolio decisions at the end mm. of the day because <laughs> there are plenty of funds that don't, that don't perform well. So, mm. um, you know, that, take, take that as you will. Uh, but, you know, from, a, from a, a, a private investor's point of view, um, for, for the vast majority, it's clearly going to be um, impractical. 
uh, for you to, um, to to really kind of gain that level of, uh, of financial knowledge without um, imparting a huge amount of time and effort in doing so. Um, but you can still make, I think, significant inroads. Uh, and as I was saying, there's plenty of kind of research and tools that are now available to you to help you, um, you know, go along. And, you know, probably, you know, uh, a, a, an analogy that I would draw is, is kind of you don't need to be necessarily a builder or an architect to buy a house. And people do that all the time with huge amounts of debt, by the way. Um, but, um, you know, you, you, you can um, you know, build up your knowledge and experience when you're when you're in investing. And, um, you know, I, I think it's unrealistic to expect that at the beginning of your journey, you're just simply going to know everything and you're going to be the best investor in the world. That's that's not how it works. Like with everything, you're going to learn as, as you as you go along and it's going to be a process. And over time, you're going to build up your knowledge and experience. Things are going to become easier and you're going to become better. Uh, and actually, some of the, the kind of oldest and best fund managers that I've spoken to, um, you know, even when they're kind of at the at the 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 kind of back end of their careers, you know, in their 60s have said, we're still learning on the job. Um, we are still learning stuff about investment. That was, A, that's what keeps us interested. Um, and also that's what makes, makes them good investors because they're still looking, um, you know, at markets and what's changing and, and opportunities. Um, so it's, it's an ongoing process. Okay, what would you say, what kind of skills do you think are needed for, for stock picking? I mean, do you need to be, and accounting because obviously there's quite a lot of financials to sift through yeah i don't think you need uh, you know kind of accountancy qualification um uh, i think i think it helps um if you're able to read um financial reports uh, of companies and there's probably a certain degree of kind of numeracy that you would will help with that um i think probably in terms of of, of being an investor you also need to um be I mean, level-headed about your um, your your kind of investments and 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 how you go about um, picking investments, uh, and also kind of you need to have a certain amount of self-awareness. I think in terms of um, what you're what you're what you're doing, some self-effacement in terms of uh, looking at your mistakes square in the face and learning from them, uh, and as I say, a willingness to kind of roll up your sleeves. And do a bit of groundwork, um, and 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 keep doing it, um, and probably kind of a bit of perseverance in there as well, um, because um, you know, as 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 you will have kind of um, said many times on this program, investing is a long term game, um, and um, you're going to be in it for the long term. So it, it is a question of kind of rolling up your sleeves, doing the research, and also um, if you're picking a stock portfolio, you need to kind of regularly review it as well. Um, in order to make sure that um, all, all, all the reasons that you you kind of picked a stock uh, are still there or largely still there and there aren't any uh, sort of nasty surprises that that are kind of hiding in plain sight. Okay, you identify um, a key a key bit of, a key document really that that companies release. What what is this? Well, yeah, I mean it's it's you know there's kind of a regular reporting cycle um, from listed companies um, and there is. Um, you know, most companies will issue two um, uh, sets of results every year, and the results are probably the key things that analysts will look at. Um, now, they're normally probably semi-annual, um, so twice a year. 
um, and um, some some companies will issue them more regularly. Some some companies will issue them quarterly. Um, I think probably if you're a retail investor, then you you probably if you if you hold a stock, you'd want to look at the results once a year, the annual results at least, and maybe you might dip into the semi-annual results as well. Um, and those basically give you a, a picture of, of the health of the company. They contain all the financial metrics. They contain an awful lot of um, uh, commentary from, from a chief executive and a chairman of the company telling you about the business, what's gone well, what's not gone so well, and also what their outlook is for the future. Um, and importantly, you know, access to these results is the same uh, for you and me, as it is to, to fund managers and big institutions, everybody gets this information at the same time. That's, um, you know, that's part of the, the kind of regulatory framework, which, which, which governs, um, you know, kind of the, the free flow of information on capital, capital markets. So these things are normally uh, released at seven o'clock in the morning. So if you want to get right on top of it, um, then, then um, you need to be a bit, a bit of an early, early bird, but um, they're then they're then available for you to look at at your leisure, basically. So you don't have to do that. And um, you know, it's really a treasure trove of information that's available to private investors uh, for you know, kind of stocks, stocks that they hold or stocks they might be thinking about investing in. And that's on the London Stock Exchange website. It is, yeah. So the London Stock Exchange website has um, uh, what's called a regular, regulatory regulatory news service. Easy for me to say, <laughs> um, and that, that's that's abbreviated RNS. Um, so if you um, go through there, you can see basically all the all the uh, the news that's uh, uh, coming out of companies uh, on a on a, um, a daily basis. Now there's probably quite a lot of those. Um, so you can go through and just search for the stocks that you're interested in and see the latest bit of regulatory news on, on those stocks. You can actually kind of sign into the, the London Stock Exchange website and you can set up email alerts for the companies that you're invested in. So when there's an, uh, a results release, it will uh, send a note to your, to your inbox. Or, you know, the results are also available on, on company investor relations websites as well. So you can go through there. Have a look at the results and so you know quite a, a lot of the time you also get an annual report as well which is kind of a glossy version of the re results with a, a few more bits of commentary chucked in as well um so those so i'd say probably london stock exchange website or the kind of investor relations website of the company that you're interested in are the best places to go for that information okay let's get on to the financials of the business which you can find in in these reports and um and you've got some i mean there's there's many different sort of bits to look at and ratios but you've got some useful pointers here in, in terms of some of the the important stuff that you think might be quite useful um should we start with profits what are we looking for here yeah so um uh, profits um uh in uh, i mean you're look you're looking really for um you know, is a company making money? That's obviously fundamental to supporting the share price. Uh, so uh, the key figure to look for in the the reports, uh, uh, the results is is the is the earnings per share figure. So this basically tells you the, the amount of profit that is earned per share in the business, and you will obviously have a number of shares depending on how much you've invested. So there are a couple of things to look at with the earnings per share figure. Uh, one is when you're looking at the results, what, what, what direction is the earnings per share heading in? 
uh, up or down. Um, and that um, gives you an indication of, of whether the business is, is uh, in good health or not. Um, also have a look at some the commentary along with that, because that's important to understand the context of why um, the earnings per share is heading in, in the direction that it is. Sometimes earnings per share heads in the, in the right direction, it goes up. But it's um, you know a temporary factor that has has mm. caused a boost to, um, to to profits, and and that should be flagged in the, in the commentary. Likewise, um, you know sometimes it heads in the wrong direction, and it's not necessarily a bad a bad sign. Um, it's just that there is a temporary um, um, write down or loss that's been sustained from a business that's been sold, for instance. So definitely have a look at the commentary as well as looking at the direction in which the earnings per share figure is heading and have a look at, at which way the earnings per share figure is heading over a number of years. And you can do that just by every, every set of accounts, um, will, will basically show you the, um, the, the earnings per share figure for, for, for that year and also the previous year. So if you go back an, a, a, another period, you can then see for the previous year as well. So have a look at how it's developing over time. That gives you an, an idea of the trajectory of the business. Um, the earnings per share figure is also um, useful for deriving uh, what's called the price earnings ratio. Um, so in order to, to get that, you would take the share price uh, and divide that um, by the earnings per share figure. Um, and that gives you uh, the price earnings ratio, which is a valuation measure. So it tells you how expensive that company is. Um, now, in, in and of itself, that might not be that useful, but you can then compare that to the price earnings ratios of other companies to see how, um, how that, uh, that particular co uh, company kind of sits in terms of whether it's cheap or expensive. I was just going to say, and of course that you've got to be careful because I mean, within a sector, that's probably quite a good comparison, but these figures will change broadly across sectors because different industries might have, you know, naturally different valuation levels, right? That is absolutely correct. And, and the reason for that comes down to the growth that's expected from them. Um, so that's another thing when you're looking at that valuation, also consider the growth of the company um, that that we're talking about. So, um, you know, something like, for instance, um, Tesco um, trades on a price earnings ratio of uh, around 14 times earnings, um, um, which is, is, isn't actually too far. It's probably around what the, what the UK market trades at, but that reflects a certain amount that, of growth that um, the market expects Tesco to deliver over the next probably three to five years. Um, now you compare that with something like uh, Microsoft, um, which has a price earnings ratio of something like um, 30 times earnings at the moment. And the reason for that is that the market expects uh, Microsoft to grow much faster over the next kind of three to five years. And then you look at something like Amazon, for instance, where um, earnings per share is something like 55 times earnings. And again, that's a reflection of the growth expectations. So you need to make a judgment really about whether the valuation is justified based on kind of how the market is also assessing the growth for those various companies. And as you say, the industries that, um, that, that they sit in. Next up, the uh, dividends. So this is the income that the, the company is paying out from its shares. Uh, that's right. Yeah. So uh, crucially important to some investors um, who are looking for income uh, from the companies that they're investing in. Um, so um, it, it's a key figure. Often it's a sign of, of 
um, a financial health of the company if it is able to um, pay out a healthy dividend. Uh, sometimes it's it's a sign of a, a millstone around a company's neck if it's paying out to, uh, you know a very a very healthy dividend and is kind of consigned to do it for, for forever because no company likes to no, no company likes to cut a dividend. Um, but it's an important it's an important figure to to bear in mind. Um, again, uh, you need to be looking at the the dividend and what what direction it's heading at. Um, over a number of years, and that will give an indication of, of whether the company is able to to kind of increase payouts, which is a dividend investor clearly you would like to see. Um, you can also compare the dividend to the share price. So again, take the share price, and then uh, sorry, take the dividend per share, and divide that by the share price, and that will give you the uh, the, the 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 yield of the stock. Um, so the UK stock market yields on average. Um, around um, three to four percent typically, um, but there are stocks within that which yield hardly anything at all. Um, that's not necessarily a sign that they're that they're poor stocks, but they're not focusing on 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 yield on dividend payments. They're probably growth stocks, maybe at earlier stages of the, their development that are actually reinvesting profits back into the business rather than paying them out to shareholders. Um, so that's probably the the lower the kind of lower end of the yield spectrum, and then you get companies that are very that offer very high yields, often tend to be fairly mature companies, and often sometimes tend to be um, um, a very high yield, and we're probably talking something like seven or eight percent. Tends to suggest that the market thinks that there is something awry with that company, that there is financial stress on that company, or that dividend won't be mis um, sustained. Um, so uh, high yields may look attractive, but just be a bit aware that they may also be a sign of, um, of financial stress as well. Okay, let's move on to profit margins. I mean, I'm assuming here you want quite a quite a juicy profit margin here. Yeah, the bigger the better, really. <laughs> um, so, um, I mean, the, the profit margin again is presented um, in in the result. It basically tells you what proportion of the revenues, the sales that a company makes are flowing through in, in, into profits. Um, you know, sales aren't um, you know, really that great if they're not flowing through in, into profits. Um, you know, if you're making a loss on, on each sale, you're, you're a loss making business and, that, and that's not kind of a good business model. Um, so um, have a look at the profit margin. Again, you know, look at, look at which way it's, it, it's heading. Um, a, a low profit margin um, you know, which is you know, kind of maybe a couple of percent, basically means that a company doesn't have much room for error um, or misfortune before it slips into making a loss. Um, a company with a healthy kind of profit margin, and you can debate what that is, but a higher rate basically gives you a buffer of of, of safety, whereby you know you can you can withstand tough times happening to the company, lower sales, higher costs, because you've got that margin there. And although, you know, lower sales or higher costs aren't going to be welcome in any business, uh, a higher profit margin means that you will still be profitable um, while, while, while that is happening. Um, again, looking at some industries, there are some industries where, you know, profit margins are simply low. Um, uh, and, and probably kind of one one example is probably you know, kind of supermarkets don't make a huge amount of, of money they um, but they are they do have a relatively stable source of income because people's kind of need for for food doesn't change that much 
Um, you know, we all eat a certain amount. We're not going to, as a whole, um, so suddenly stop eating kind of, you know, um, you know, kind of 20% of what we were eating yesterday kind of thing. So they do have quite stable revenue streams. Um, probably another interesting area is, is kind of construction, um, where profit margins are, are very low. And actually, that's quite, quite, quite risky in that industry. And we saw that with um, the collapse of Carillion a number of years ago, if you remember that, mm -hmm. uh, where the company had very small um, um, uh, profit margins because it's bidding for really big contracts and they want to get they want to put the best price that they can um to, to, to really get that contract um and the problem with that is that those kind of big infrastructure projects are, are subject to extra costs long delays problems that you can't foresee uh, and when those hit and you've got a really small profit margin then that's the time that you can, can find a, a business in in in, in lots of trouble and that, that's what happened to Carillion. Final one we're going to look at is debt. I mean, I'm assuming you don't want a company to be too leveraged here. That's right. Yeah. So um, uh, the, the the higher the debt, the more risk that the business has. It's, it's probably important to put in context in context as well. So um, the, the kind of net debt um, uh, is the figure to look for in the results and account. Uh, and, and, and basically, probably the way that analysts look at it is to compare that with the earnings. And there's actually a specific earnings figure here. It's called a BITDAR, which is earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and, and amortization, which sounds like a mouthful. And it is, but um, it's, it's a BITDAR and you will normally find this um, reported in the, in the accounts as well. Uh, or if not, you will, you will be able to find it um, elsewhere on, on, on um, sort of various brokerage sites. Um, but if you compare the kind of net debt to um, uh, a bit dar, um, it, it basically gives you an indication of, of, of how many years it would take for a company to pay off its debt at the current levels of, of profitability. And the way that kind of analysts tend to look at it is that if you've got a company with kind of a net debt to a bit dar ratio uh, of, of less than two, so that is that. Um, net debt is 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 no more than two times um, a bit dar. That's considered healthy. Two to three is probably considered okay. Ratio about three starts to raise eyebrows um, because obviously the more debt a company a company has, um, the more uh, at risk it, it's it's at from from kind of having to refinance that debt at higher interest rates, and the more financial stress that that can potentially put on a business. I just sort of wanted to finish off with some of the softer stuff of the business and um, you know it is is it, you know in terms of its brand and its marketplace and other competitors within its field you know is this information available in these reports and or are there other sources that you could point to that that are, that are quite good for sort of getting a bit of a broader picture of, of the business. Yeah, I definitely think a lot of it is in the results and accounts, but um, you probably can't get it all from one company within the industry. You probably need to look across the results of a number of companies um, within within the industry and indeed their suppliers and their customers, the results of those companies as well. And you can start to kind of build out a bit of a picture um, by kind of moving horizontally from a company along to other company along to other companies that are in the same industry having a look at their results and just getting a feel for how 
that particular industry is doing and what, what's going on. And then, as I say, also looking vertically as well. So, you know, who do, who are the suppliers of, of, of that company? Look at their results, what's going on in, in there to understand the dynamics there. And, you know, if, if a company is, is supplying other businesses itself, then how are it's kind of, how are the results of its, its customers doing as well? So that's probably um, a way to get a bit, a bit of a feel for the kind of softer, um, areas of the market. I think there probably is also you know, a lot of uh, research and kind of information available um, in the media, um, or kind of, you know, kind of um, broker sites, platforms. I know at AJ Bell, we, we do an awful lot of research that, you know, we try to, to keep investors as informed as possible about interesting things that we see happening in the market. So I think there are lots of um, uh, places that you can go to and as, as I said I think at the top the, the internet has really been a game changer on that front because all that kind of um, um, it, kind of information statistics research and analysis wasn't really there 20 years ago. Okay I'm going to ask you one final question then on just a bit of portfolio strategy really I mean if you look at the the theory it's sort of 10 to 15 stocks gets rid of very specific risks to do with having an individual company and you've mentioned to me before that you know quite focused professional portfolios have around 30 so that would be quite a trim portfolio but you know quite a lot of them are 50 to 60. Um, Sounds like quite a lot of work though to trade and and do the research on all these different stocks is there a way around this where you can still have some stock picking but you don't need to do quite as much work? Yeah, I think I think it definitely is. I mean, it is it is an endeavour. If you if you're just going to run a stock portfolio, you really need to be across it. And I would probably say, the minimum number of stocks you'd really want is probably around the twenty five market, bare minimum. Um, I think ten to fifteen is really punchy. It doesn't take, you know, you know, too you know too much misfortune within that portfolio to to really kind of damage your wealth. Um, so I mean, the, the the one thing that we do have access to um, is is obviously funds as well. Uh, which offer kind of instant diversification. You know, most fund managers, you say, even focused ones will have a portfolio of around 30 stocks. Uh, More diversified funds will have, you know, kind of 50 to 100. Um, A tracker fund that tracks the UK market will have 600. Um, So I'd suggest you kind of using using funds as well is a good idea. Because, I mean, actually, that's, it's, it's a good idea to probably kind of have a core of your portfolio in funds, which offer you that diversification. You've got them professionally managed. Um, and then you can build a stock portfolio around that. And then, you know, you can perhaps start off with a smaller number of stocks because, you know, you've got the diversification in the, in the major part of your portfolio. Uh, and this is particularly perhaps as you're starting off and learning. Um, you can then add, you know, kind of one or two stocks around the side, things that, that you like, and then gradually build it up over time. Perhaps, you know, in time you'll get to running 30 stock portfolio. Maybe you won't, maybe you'll always keep funds in your portfolio. But I'd suggest that's probably quite a good way um, to, to achieve diversification and get some stock picking without um, having to spend a truly onerous amount of time running a portfolio. Um, and, and, you know, just use active funds and tracker funds you know, have a handful of those which provide you with your core diversification and then do a bit of stock picking um, around the edges of that is, yeah. is probably, I think, for mm. most UK investors, a, a good place to at least start. 
Yeah, definitely something we talked about before. This kind of core and satellite idea of of um of a of a strategy enabling you to have some fun in the in the riskier stuff and yet still keep this core that's moving you towards your your long term goals. Really, um, Laith Kalath, thank you so much for joining me. That was a really interesting look um, at, at a fascinating topic. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Lots to unpack. Uh, I think. Laith makes some really good points and if you want a bit more on this you know what? I'm going to be writing about this as well as some extra bits revealing what Warren Buffett the world's greatest investor looks for as well in stocks that's going to be in our next magazine as well so definitely give that a read I'll, I'll let you know when that's out but you know broadly I think it's, it's risky obviously investing in individual stocks but I admit it is fun uh, and of course at Age of Bell, they're seeing that investors want to do this and, it, and it's increasing. And I like his idea of using, you know, if you want to get involved in this, using this core and satellite approach to get going with it. So you've got your funds in there for diversification across assets, across different markets, across sectors. And then you can just dabble in some of these stocks, start off small as well, get a bit of a feel for it, make some mistakes before then increasing that over time. And, and I think that's a good idea. It's what I do as well. I don't have a portfolio of any stocks. I, I have funds mainly, but I do dabble in, in a few individual stocks. And, and it is just interesting sort of keeping up with one particular company and, and finding out about the management and seeing what its results are and, and hopefully seeing it grow and then therefore your investments grow as well. Uh, so, and of course, with more risk, it, there comes the, the potential for greater returns. So that's that's where the fun is. But also don't forget, stock prices can go to zero. So, and so can your investment, whereas whereas funds are far, far less likely to do that. So um, that's just one, one note of caution. Okay, that's all we have time for. Hope you enjoyed the show. Um, and next week we are, sorry, next couple of weeks we're going to be back with uh, a real life investor as well who's going to be talking about uh, the challenges that she has having inherited quite a bit of money from um, and properties and different assets from her, her late father so it's a very common thing particularly amongst the sort of gen x kind of age so the sort of 40 to 55 year olds really um this is a, this is a big thing that people find and it's often when for the first time people start thinking well you know do i need a financial advisor and everything like that so we're going to be talking to her a uh, really lovely person um uh, next time so i hope you enjoy the show thank you